Well, we, we're in the third week of our epic series, and last weekend we talked about the fact that when you get right down to it, God basically gets blamed for everything. I mean, every time something bad happens, whether it's a natural disaster, something happens in our family, something happens to a friend of ours, there's just something inside of us that wants to point the finger at God and say, God, this is your fault. This one is on you. But I'm going to be honest, I've never had anybody say to me, you know what, I've never really ever believed in the devil before, but some really bad stuff's been happening in my life. Now I believe in the devil. And maybe that's happened to you. Maybe that's your story. I've just never heard it. It seems like we always blame God. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but if you were here last weekend, we got a clue. Because last week we saw that when God created man, he created man in relationship with him for relationship with him. And when God created mankind in this relationship, for this relationship, God knew that for there to be real relationship, authentic relationship, mankind had to have the choice. Do you want to be in a relationship with me or not? And we talked about the fact you can't force someone to be in a relationship with you. You can't be forced to be in a relationship with someone else. God knew that for there to be a relationship, he had to allow man either choose to be in a relationship or reject the opportunity to be in the relationship with him. And if you were here, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that basically mankind rejected that opportunity when they disobeyed God and they broke intimacy with God. And understand that when man made that choice, the world was introduced to three things that the world had never experienced before. The world was introduced to sin and sorrow and death. And when sin and sorrow and death came into the world, from, from then on it seems that man has been suspicious of God. There's almost an attitude that says, I'm just not sure I can trust God. And you got to understand, it's because intimacy was broken in the Garden of Eden. And once intimacy was broken, trust was broken. And that explains why a lot of you sitting here this weekend, you have a really hard time trusting God. And just like Adam and Eve, when you don't trust God, there's a natural tendency to want to hide from God and maybe avoid God. But what, what's really interesting is this, and we saw this last week with Adam and Eve. As soon as Adam and Eve broke intimacy with God, God immediately began the process of putting it all back together again. God immediately began the process to reestablish intimacy with them. And as we said, the epic story of the Bible is really nothing more than God's pursuit to reconnect with man. God's pursuit to reconnect with us so that we could be in an intimate relationship with him. Now this weekend, we're gonna look at another chapter in this ongoing epic story. We're gonna talk about a guy whose name uh, is Abram. Later on, God changes his name to what? Oh, see, you guys are smart. You guys are like Bible scholars. I'm, get, I'm glad nobody yelled out Leroy, okay? Eventually, God changes his name to Abraham. He's the next main character in, in the book of Genesis. And we're going to talk about a story, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with. And in this story about God and Abram, we're going to see just how intentional God is about connecting with man. And we're going to see how tenacious God is about reestablishing the kind of relationship with mankind that he had in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. It was a relationship of intimacy, a relationship of trust. If you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 12, uh, let me just tell you how the story goes while you're turning there. Genesis chapter 12, Abram's just a regular guy. He's just minding his own business. He was li living in a period of time where there were no Bibles, no churches, no religion. There were no traditions. There were no denominations. They had nothing. I mean, we're talking about a period of time 4,000 years ago. And the Bible says that one day God just showed up and he began to talk to Abram. And we don't know what that looked like. We don't know how that went down. Um, you know, that's kind of weird whenever we talk about hearing from God. But my guess is since God created communication, when he decides he wants to talk to us, we're going to hear him. Right? So God begins to talk to Abram. And basically this is what God says to him. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abram. 
And from you, there's going to come multiple nations, and you're going to have millions of descendants. But most importantly, every family on this earth, Abram, is going to be blessed by your influence. Let me show you the conversation, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And over time, over years, God kept coming back to Abram and reminding him of this promise. And on one occasion, Abram's like, well, God, listen. I mean, I hear you. I'm just not sure this is really going to happen. I mean, I don't even have children, and, and you keep making me these promises, and then you don't show up for 10 years, and then you, you show up, and you, you tell me the promises again, and then, you know, another 15 years go by. So one day, uh, God, you know, Abram says, hey, God, could, could you just, could you help a brother out? I mean, could you, could, could you throw me a bone? Could you give me something to hang my head on? Give me some kind of sign. Give me some kind of hope. And if you know the story, God says, hey, Abram, come outside with me. And so they go outside, and God says to him, hey, look up at the stars. Look at all those stars. Abram, that's how numerous your descendants are going to be. And Abram, look around. See all the land around you? I am going to give you all of this land for your descendants forever and ever and ever and ever. And Abram's going, listen, God, I'm going to believe you. But I just want to remind you, I don't even have child one yet. But then God does something amazing. God established a covenant with Abram. Now, let me just say a few things about covenants. Uh, kind of give you a seminary crash course here. Uh, we don't have culture. We don't have uh, covenants in our culture. Unless you live in a, a neighborhood like mine, and then you have a covenant, and there's three people who don't have a life, and so they tell you what color you can paint your house and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe you have that. That's the only time we really ever hear of a covenant, right? We deal with contracts. So a covenant was really nothing more than an ancient Contract, And this word covenant means this, to bond something together or shackle two things together. It's to bond something together or shackle it together. And it's this idea that it cannot be separated. And in the culture of the Old Testament, a covenant generally had four points. First of all were the terms. It's basically, I will do this if you'll do that. And then second, there was the oath. And the oath was something that was spoken to one another. And then there was the ratification. In other words, they would, they would do something symbolically to kind of demonstrate that they were entering into this covenant. And then the fourth was the curse. And the curse is basically, if, if you don't keep your end of the deal, this is what's going to happen to you. If I don't keep my end of the deal, this is what's going to happen to me, right? And if you've been to a wedding, and I guess most of us have, you've seen three of the four parts of a covenant in a wedding. First of all, there are the terms. We don't call it the terms. It's really the charge. And this is where the minister stands up and says, will you, you, know, will you love and cherish and promise and yada, 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 yada. And the bride and groom, they don't really hear you anyway. But eventually they say, yeah, I do, right? And that's the terms of the covenant that they're getting ready to enter into. And then there's the oath. What do we call the oath? Great, the vows. Okay, wake up, people. Stay with me. The vows is, you know, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Those, that, would, that would be the oath. Those would be the vows. How do we symbolically ratify the covenant? We exchange what? Shoes, no rings. Good, you're with me now. We exchange rings. And it's with this ring, I pledge my life and my sacred honor and all this kind of stuff. The only thing we really don't have in wedding ceremonies is the curse. But I'm thinking about bringing it back. I'm thinking about adding the curse into my ceremonies because I'm thinking that this is why marriages fail so often, right? We've taken the curse out. And the curse is basically this. Billy Bob, if you don't do what you just committed to, see her dad over there? He's got a gun. See, that's, that's the curse. A Mary Sue, if you don't do what you just committed to, see, her, see his, his mom? She's got a frying pan. See, that's, 
That's the power of a curse. And I got a great joke. And that just gives my wife chills every time I say I have a joke. But I have a great joke. Earl and Mabel have been married for 50 years. And uh, so the church decides they're going to throw them a big 50-year anniversary party in the fellowship hall. If you ever grew up in those kind of churches, you know, that's in the basement with a linoleum floor, right? So they've got this party going on, and they're ready to cut the cake, and Earl is missing. They can't find Earl anywhere. And they're like, well, we can't cut the cake without Earl here. So the pastor says, I'll go find him. And he goes up outside, and Earl is sitting on the stoop of the, you know, right there on the church. Got his head in his hands. Pastor says, Earl, what is wrong? Everybody's celebrating 50 years of incredible marriage. What are you doing up here? He said, Pastor, I never told you this story, but I'm going to tell you. 50 years ago, me and Mabel, we were parked in a car, and we were doing things you shouldn't be doing if you're not married. The windows were getting all steamed up. We were getting all hot and bothered. And about that time, a flashlight shone through the window. It was Mabel's dad, and he's a county sheriff. And we got out of that car, and he says, Son, if you don't marry my daughter, you're going to spend the next 50 years in jail. And Earl just began to sob, and the pastor put his arm around and said, so what's the problem? He said, tomorrow I would have been a free man. <laughs> so, that's the power of a curse right there. You know, he stuck with it, right? <clears throat> In Abraham's day, point aside, the covenant cons consisted of terms, oath, ratification, and a curse. Let me just say this. Covenants had been around long before Abraham. They weren't a theological thing, not a biblical thing. They were actually a cultural thing. And so covenants, these are something Abraham was very, very familiar with. And there were all different kinds of covenants in the Bible and all different kinds of ways to ratify covenants. Sometimes it's funny, you could exchange shoes. And I never really understood why you exchange shoes. And aren't you glad they don't do that anymore? Aren't you glad we exchange rings at weddings and not shoes? I mean, how uncomfortable would you be if I was preaching in a pair of large strappy stilettos this weekend? See, so, I, so we don't change shoes, so that's good. But sometimes they would in the Old Testament. Sometimes they would exchange salt. I would reach into my salt bag, and I'd put a little bit of salt in your bag, and you'd reach into your bag and put a little salt in my bag. And it was to demonstrate, listen, if you're ever in need, you can count on me to provide for your family. And it kind of went both ways. Sometimes you would exchange weapons. If you've, if you've read the story of David and Jonathan, they exchanged weapons. And, and that was a covenant to say, I am pledging to you my strength and my power. And if your life is ever in danger, if your family is ever being threatened, you can call on me and I'm going to be there to fight for you. But the most binding covenant was the blood covenant. And in the blood covenant, you killed an animal and then you took the animal and you cut it in half. And this probably explains why, you know, you don't do it in weddings anymore, except at Fuquay, where they probably still have pig pickets, Right. But you, you would separate the two parts of the animal. And this is what's interesting. The two people agreeing are entering into the covenant. They would join hands and they would walk between the pieces of the animal. And this is what they were basically saying as they were walking. May it be done to you as it was done to this animal if you don't keep your promise. May it be done to me as was done to this animal if I don't make, keep the commitment, the promise that I made to you. It also meant I am dying to my right not to fulfill this promise to you. And it was irrevocable. It was a till death do us part kind of thing. Uh, in fact, if the other person didn't keep their end of the deal, you had the right to take their life. Covenants were very, very serious. Now, that's the theolo theological lesson on covenants in a nutshell. So here's Abram. And God has been making all of these promises to Abram for years. You're going to have descendants. You're going to get all this land. I'm going to bring a great nation from you. And Abram's like, can I just get one child? How about one child? Can we just start there? And God's like, man, I, Abram, I want you to know, I am, I, am, I am totally committed to this. I am in, all in. And God enters into a covenant with Abram. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. If you don't have your Bible, 
Verses are on the side screen. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other, the birds. However, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Not sure why God added that in the Bible, but it's there, right? As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So God's giving them a heads up. The descendants that are going to come from you, they're going to spend 400 years in slavery. He's referring to the time the Hebrew people were in Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, now get this, your descendants will come back here. Now, we'll read the rest later, but just kind of get this in your mind. God gives Abram the instructions. Give me this, give me that, give me the heifer, the goat, the ram, give me the bird, get the partridge in a pear tree, get all those things together. So Abram's done this, and he's setting up for the covenant. I mean, he, you know, he's got, he's got all the animals sliced and diced and separated, and he's just, he's just waiting. What's he waiting for? I mean, what is Abram expecting to happen? He's just assuming, because he knows the culture of covenants, that he's going to walk between these slaughtered animals and he's going to enter into this covenant with God. See, he's expecting God to say, this is how I'm going to bring a great nation through you, Abram, but this is what you've got to do. This is your part. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's, that's the way a covenant worked. It went both ways. But that's not what happened. Look at what happened in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now look at this phrase. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Let me ask you a question. What's Abram doing while all of this is going on? Well, he's just kind of overhanging out under a tree watching the whole thing happen. And you're thinking, well, Mike, that's so awesome. I'm glad you got to go to seminary and learn all kind of boring stuff like this. What else you got, right? You got to understand what this meant. It meant that God entered into a covenant with Abram without Abram doing anything in return. There was no oath. There were no vows. There was no ratification. There was nothing. God was basically saying this to Abram. Abram, I don't care what you do. I don't care how bad you screw up. I am committed to making you a great nation. And one day I am going to bring you back to this land. And from this nation living in this land... Every family in the world is going to be blessed. And Abram, there is nothing you can do about it. Kind of that kind of attitude. You can't screw it up. Just sit back and watch. Now let me ask you a question. Why would God do such a crazy thing? I mean, mankind's already screwed up big time in the Garden of Eden. You know, they, they abused their freedom. They in, introduced sin, sorrow, and death to the human race. So why would God once again deal with the same human race? And understand, the people are much worse now than they were when it was just Adam and Eve. So why would God do this? Why would he come back and choose a sinner? Why would he choose Abram? Why would he choose to fulfill this promise and Abraham doesn't have to do anything? Why would God do that? And why would God promise unconditionally to bring about something in Abram's family that is going to bless the entire earth? This is why God did it. It's because God is on a relentless mission to reconnect with his prized creation. 
That is the great epic story of the Bible. God is on a relentless mission to reconnect with his prize creation. That is the storyline. That's how important. I don't know if you've ever thought that this, that's how important we are to him. And he would not stop. And he would not give up. And guess what happened? About 15 years later, finally, Abram had a son. And that son had a couple of sons. And one of those sons had 12 sons. And that entire family, guess where they ended up? They ended up living in Egypt because there was a famine. The whole story of Joseph. And from this father and these sons and their wives and kids, they grew into a great nation right under the Egyptians' noses. 400 years. In fact, historians believe that from that family, they grew to over two and a half million Jews. See, Moses was one of those guys. And after 400 years of slavery, Moses led that nation to freedom. And guess where they marched? They marched right back to the spot where God had made every one of these promises to Abram. And over the next thousand years, the nation grew and they developed and they had kings and they had armies and they had wars and they had battles. And every, every leader of Israel messed up. Every one of them screwed up. Saul, the first king, screwed up. David messed up. Solomon messed up. Everyone, you can do the study yourself. Every one of them was unfaithful to God. I mean, if you just read the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, it is just one big mess after another. Some of the most gruesome things you will ever read anywhere in life are in the Old Testament connected to the nation of Israel. I think of the book of Judges. And there's a story about a guy who had a concubine. If you don't know what a concubine is, it's a second-class wife. That tells you right there things are already messed up. And he basically gives her over to a bunch of worthless guys. They raped her all night. She made her way back to the doorpost of the house, died. And you know what he did? He cut her up into 12 pieces and sent her out throughout Israel, let everybody know what was going on. You know what the people said? Wow, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. You ever watch Fox News or CNN and you hear something that's just so bad, you're like, wow, how bad can it get? Nothing has ever happened like this. Yes, it has. Just check out the people of Israel. Check out the nation of Israel. In fact, you know what the commentary was on Israel at the end of Judges? Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was chaos. There was anarchy. These are, these, these are Abram's descendants. I mean, these are like Jews gone wild. They're out of control. Do you know what God did? Focused, kept his eye on the prize, kept plowing straight ahead. He was like, I don't care how bad you screw up. I don't care how inconsistent you are. I don't even care that you get into idol worship. I will not be deterred. I am gonna bring a person through this nation who is gonna bless every family on earth and it's because I want intimacy with you and I will not be deprived of what I want. Focused. And finally, 2,000 years after God made that promise to Abram, an angel shows up in a little village in Nazareth and tells a young teenage Jewish girl, you're going to have a baby, a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be the Savior of the world. And it's going to fulfill a prophecy that the prophet Isaiah made 800 years earlier. A virgin is going to have a child and one of his names will be Emmanuel, God with us. See, we think that's the Christmas story. No, that's God's story. That's part of this epic story. It was the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abram 2,000 years earlier when he said, I don't care what you do, I'm going to bring somebody through you, Abram, 
now Abraham, who was going to bless the entire earth. So Jesus came to this earth, and he, he lived to about the age of 30, and he worked as a carpenter, and then he went public with his ministry. What did Jesus do while he was on this earth? You know what he did? He went around and said, hey, let me tell you about God. You know what God is like? Hmm, let's see. God's like a shepherd who lost a sheep, and he sought and sought and sought, and he searched until he found the sheep. You know what God is like? You know, God is like a woman who lost a valuable coin, and she turned her house upside down and swept every square inch until she found that coin. You know what God is like? God is like a father who lost his son, but he was so committed to reconnecting with that son. That's what, that's what God is like. And he proclaimed that message for three years. And finally, the very last night that Jesus was on this earth, he gathered the disciples in the upper room and he says, man, I've so wanted to just have this Passover dinner with you. And out of the dinner, he took some bread and he gave it to the disciples. And he says, this represents my body that's gonna be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said to them in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, this cup is the new covenant. Ooh, there's that word again. It's the new covenant in my blood which is poured out. For you. What does that mean, new covenant? Well, the old covenant's the law of Moses. It's the Old Testament, and those who lived in that era, you know, it was the priests and the animals and the sacrifices, and it was the law. And, you know, if you, if you sinned, you disobeyed God, you went to the priest with an animal, and, and he offered up the sacrifice for you, and, and your sin was taken care of for the time being, right? But by nightfall, you were guilty again. I mean, under the old covenant, there was never a permanent erasing of your sin. It was covered, but it was never erased. Jesus says, that's the old way of doing things. There's a new sheriff in town, and I'm instituting a whole new set of promises. It's a new agreement. It's a new covenant. It's something that's going to be taken care of by me once and for all. You're not going to need priests. You're not going to need sacrifices. You're not going to need animals. You're not going to have to live under the burden of the law. This is a new covenant. It's based on my blood, my body, my sacrifice. It's a new covenant that's characterized by things like love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. In fact, you know what? You could sum it up in one word, relationship. And sure enough, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, falsely convicted, beaten, nailed to a cross. I mean, you think Adam and Eve, you think they cringed when they watched God in the garden? We talked about this last week, take an innocent animal and kill that animal. You think they cringed? What do you think was going on in heaven when the angels had to look down and see the Son of God bleeding to death on a cross, right? And then finally, after six hours, Jesus said, it is finished. Done. I've atoned, I have paid for the sins of the world, and I did it so that mankind once again could experience intimacy with God. That's how relentless my love is for you. I want you to understand something. That's Emmanuel, God with us. See, we don't think that way. Somehow our, our thinking's got all skewed. We think Emmanuel, God is after us. Emmanuel, God is mad at us. Emmanuel, God wants to crush us. Emmanuel, God can't be trusted. We have got it all wrong. It's Emmanuel, God with us at last. Intimacy available at last. I mean, count back for us. This is a plan that began 4,000 years ago. You think he's going to give up on us now? He's not going to give up on us now. He wants to connect with us. Do you know what my advice is for you this weekend? My advice is simply this. Quit hiding from God. (laughs) 
Quit being like Adam and Eve. Quit avoiding God. Figure out, identify what it is that's keeping you from going face to face with God every day and, and just deal with it because he's not gonna give up on you. He loves you too much. He's got too much invested in the process. He's made it very, very clear he wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. He's done unbelievable stuff to make it possible to pave the way. But at some point, you gotta quit hiding. It's just like God said to Adam and Eve, why are you where you are? And I think that's what God is saying to many of you. Are you kidding me? Why are you hiding? Why are you where you are? In fact, you know what I think God would say to some of you this weekend? Some of you, you've been hiding from God for years because of a bad religious experience. I mean, every time somebody asks you, oh, you got a sad story. Let me tell you my sad story. And you tell them your sad story. You tell them about something, you know, that, 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 that uh, something happened to you at church. Something happened to your dad. Something happened to your family. This is how they treated my mom. And I am never going to trust the church. And I am never going to trust Christians. And I am never going to trust God again. You know, you know what I think God would say? Could we at least talk about it? Don't avoid me because some religious person in your past was a jerk. You want to talk about religious people. Shoot, you ought to read how they treated my son. He's got the scars to show for it. In fact, we have something in common. So don't avoid me just because something bad happened. You had a bad religious experience years ago. Some of you, if you're honest, you're avoiding God. You're hiding from God because of sin. And I'm not talking about some sin that happened 10 years ago. I'm talking about like last night. And in fact, you're getting ready to do it again tonight. You know, that kind of sin. And you're like, well, I'm sure God's not interested in going face to face with me right now. Let me tell you something. This is what, this is what I think God is saying. Well, come on, just try me. Let's talk. Put all your cards on the table and let's talk about your sin. Let's talk about how you think I feel. But at least try me. Don't let your sin get in the way. I'm not going to let it get in the way. I've already taken care of your sin from my perspective. That's why I gave my son to die for you. Let's talk. Some of you are avoiding God because you're mad at him. You're just ticked off. He didn't do something you thought he should have done, or he didn't handle a situation the way you thought he should have handled it. And if he's God, why didn't he step in and stop you from being abused? Why didn't he step in and save your parent from dying? Why didn't he step in and save your marriage? But because he didn't, right, you're angry at God, you're mad at God. This is what's interesting. You've never taken your anger to God. You never talked to God about your anger, so you spent years hiding and avoiding God. I talked to a young man right after church last weekend out on the portico, maybe 25, 26 years old, and he walked up and he said, thank you about your message about trusting God because I, I've been so mad at God over the last two years because two years ago my mom died and he could have stopped it, but he didn't. Let me tell you something. God can handle your anger. God can handle your disappointment. In fact, I think he would be honored if you would just bring it to him. You can use any language you want. You can be as loud as you want. You can be as emotional as you want. But don't hide from him. I mean, he's relentless. <laughs> he's not going to give up on that relationship with you. Some of you are avoiding God. You're hiding from God because you think, well, if I go to him, he'll reject me. Let me just ask you a question. Why would he give his son to die for you and then reject you? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Plus, good gracious, he's been pursuing you for 4,000 years. He's been working for 4,000 years to get to this point. Why would he reject you now? So why don't you just do yourself a favor this weekend and quit hiding from God? He wants to be in a relationship with you. And I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing you can do that could ever make him want to change his mind.
He's got way too much invested in you. There's too much at stake. So what are you hiding behind? What kind of wall is there that's keeping you from connecting with God in a way that is going to absolutely blow your mind? He's done all the work. He's basically come out, come out wherever you are, you know. Let's bow together. Maybe you're here this weekend and you've been a Christian for years, but you're honest. If you're honest with yourself, you're hiding from God. And maybe you've lost trust in him. Let me be honest. We all go through that, right? I'm not going to ask you for some big demonstration on your part this weekend. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or stand or walk down the aisle. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm just going to ask you this. Would you be willing to get along with God this week and just, just tell him how you feel? I don't care what the issue is. I don't care what kind of sin you're dealing with in your life. I'm telling you, and we're really going to see this next weekend as we wrap up the series. You don't have to be afraid of God. He's your heavenly father. He loves you. Emmanuel, God with us. He's invested 4,000 years to get to this moment, this moment right now. But you got to understand it's your move. Father, thank you for reminding us of the intensity of your love. And Father, for those who don't trust you right now, I just pray that you'll do something this week that will bring them one step closer to just kind of laying it all out before you. Father, for the person who's been hurt by the system and maybe they've been away from church for years and maybe they finally worked up the courage this weekend to walk back in, whatever it is that hurt them, whatever it is that made them avoid you and hide from you, I pray that they would just bring it to you. Father, show them from your word how Jesus suffered the same thing. This isn't new. Father, for the person who's mired in unbelievable sin, we know you despise their sin because, Father, you know it's hurting them. You know it's keeping them from being the person that you created them to be. I just pray that they would have the courage to bring it to you. And, Father, for those who are here who aren't even aware of the walls that are in their life, I pray that you would reveal them to us so that we could see them. And help us to come to you just as we are. And help us to experience your love and your forgiveness and your grace in a way that changes our lives. In your holy name we pray.